If you'll do something with me, I know this is going to sound obvious, but I want to make sure we're on the same page or else the rest of this month, the rest of this series isn't going to make a lot of sense. Can you find your pulse for me? You know how to do that? Hopefully you found it. If not, let our, uh, let our first response team know real quick. So you find that, right? So you've got a pulse that tells you what? That you are alive. If you were to put your hand in front of your mouth, you're going to feel yourself breathing, that breath that goes out, and you can even feel that breath coming in. That's evidence, that's proof that you are living today. You find a pulse, you feel your breath, you know without a doubt, I am living, I am physically alive because I can feel my heart. Because I can feel my breath, there's evidence that points to that fact and that statement that I am alive. If we were to hook all of you up to a, a heart monitor, you would see your heartbeat, right? Again, another proof, some more evidence that this is showing what we already know to be true, right? You know you're alive. You woke up this morning. I don't, you don't need to prove it to yourself, but you can show other people I'm alive because I've got a heartbeat. I'm walking around. I interact with you. I've got breath in my lungs like we just sang. There's evidence that you are physically alive. We see the same thing when we talk spiritually, that we are spiritually alive, but what do we actually see within that? If you want to, you don't have to turn there. I'll put it up on here. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this life that we are given, this life that we have. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God is so rich in mercy, he loved us so much that even though we were dead, say dead with me, even though we were dead, dead because of our sins, he gave us what? Life. life. So even though we were dead, no heartbeat, no breath, spiritually speaking, even though we were dead because of our sins, our rebellion against God, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. When we sin, when we rebel against God, when we do our thing instead of his thing, that puts us in a place of spiritual death. But God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to take our sins away, to defeat both sin and death, and he gave us, what was that word again? Life. You are alive in Christ. And it's not by anything that you do. It's not by anything that you have done. It's not by doing a lot of the right things and then you earn it or that you do so much that you finally deserve it. No, we are given that life because of his grace. We are spiritually alive if you have received that grace. If you said, Jesus, I'm not perfect, I'm a sinner, but man, I need you in my life and I need a savior. If you've done that, then you are alive in Christ. You used to be dead, but now you are alive. But let's ask the same question, because this one might be a little bit harder. How do you know you're physically alive? Well, you find the pulse, you feel your breath, you see you moving around. How would we answer that question spiritually speaking? If you are alive in Christ, you know that. You know that you've been saved by his grace, not by your works or actions, but only by the grace of God. You know that, but is it evident? Is it obvious to the people around you that you are no longer spiritually dead, but you are spiritually alive? How do we show it? How is it evident? How do the people around us not just know we are breathing, but that we are spiritually alive because of Christ. That's an answer that we see throughout Scripture. In fact, I'm going to put just a handful of these up there. This is not all of them, but just to give you an idea of how Scripture throughout the Bible talks about that evidence or that proof, that living proof that, that I am saved by grace, and so therefore my life looks different. 
You can see in John chapter 13, those are Jesus's words. Jesus says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other just as I've loved you. You should love one another. Look, your love for one another will prove that you are my disciples. It'll prove to the world. So if you're alive in Christ, one of the ways that the world knows that we're alive in Christ is by Jesus's words. When you love each other, the world's gonna know. That is living proof. It's like a heartbeat. It's like the breath that comes out of your mouth. That's proof to the world that you are alive in Christ. You can see how Ephesians talks about it, that we throw off this old sinful nature and we clothe ourselves with the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians speaks to us having new life. And this is a big deal. This isn't just different life. This is new life. This is dead to alive, not, now nah, I'm a little bit different now. I talk like a little bit different now. My Sunday mornings look a little bit different now. No, there's a big difference between different and new. And we're told we have new life. First John, notice this. Dear children, let's not merely say we love each other. Let's show it. Let's show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth so we can be confident. So once again, our actions show the truth that we hold to and the truth that we believe. James chapter 2 will end here. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. That life that we have been given, how is it shown? How is it given? How does the world know that we have a savior, that we have been given life, that we have been brought from death to life? Those are the questions I want rattling around in your head for the next four weeks. Throughout the month of November, we're actually gonna do a study through the book of James. And James gives us great insight into what this evidence looks like. Now, let me just make sure we're all on the same page, especially with what James said in, in chapter two, that faith without works is dead. That does not mean you are saved by good works. No, we, we cleared that up in Ephesians chapter two, that we are saved by grace. But because I am now alive, my life looks very different. I've been given new life, so of course things are gonna be different. There's different actions that go with it. So please make sure that we're all on the same page. We are not saved by the things that we do. Let me have some nods here. We are saved by the grace of God, but because of the fact that we are now alive, our lives are going to be very, very different because we've been given new life. So what does that look like? James is going to help us understand that. How do we begin to see the evidence in our lives, and how do the other people see that so they can begin to also make that move from death to life. Let me give you a disclaimer here as we go through James. If you're willing to stick with me in our study through James for the next four weeks, James is very challenging. He is very blunt. So he will challenge you. Like you're going to be sitting in your seat like, ooh, I did not like hearing that. You're going to hear that every single week. <laughs> He's going to challenge you in how you live and how you talk and how you spend your money and what you think about and what you do, what you don't do. He's going to be real upfront about the sins and temptations and desires of our life. He's going to talk to us and challenge us on how we interact with other people around us and how we view ourselves and how we view other people. Like there's not going to be a week this, or there's not going to be a week this next month where you're like, ah, I got all that done. He's not talking to me. No, we're all, me included, are all going to be in the same boat of like, ooh, that one hurt a little bit. So allow him to challenge us. Right? And if you find yourself challenged and even convicted, that doesn't mean that we should have shame of like, oh, no, I'm not as good as I'm supposed to be. I'm not doing everything that I should be. No, that's all of us. My hope and my prayer is this gives us motivation of like, yes, I am alive. I am no longer dead. I am alive in Christ. So here's what I want my life to look like. 
And we're all going to have work to do in this area. But if we don't have the conversations around, we don't allow James to challenge us, we will just keep going on. And sometimes it's good to check the heartbeat. I am still alive, right? <laughs> yes. But do other people know that? That's what we want to begin to walk through. So allow him to challenge you, but don't let it take you down a spiral of guilt and shame. This, I pray, is motivation because of what's in your heart. The truth and the life that you have in your heart is going to come out, but let's have a conversation around it. Does that make sense? Good? All right. If you don't like to be challenged and convicted, then skip the next four weeks, and I'll see you in December. That'll be fun. We talk about Christmas. If you're willing to be challenged, it'll be a good series. All right, James chapter 1. Have your Bibles. Go through it with me. I'll put them on the screen, but we'd love for you to, to walk through this physically. And if you don't have a Bible, again, I've got them outside in the lobby. Uh, that's our gift to you. James chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1. We're told this letter is from James. Notice how he talks about himself. He says, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad, greetings. Now, real quick, we're going to come back to this. I'm not going to talk a ton about it now, so hold on to it. Don't miss how he talked about himself. He said, I am James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Solidify that in your mind. We are going to come at the very end. I'm going to tell you why that's so significant. So based on who he is even, alive in Christ, a slave, a bond servant, a willing servant and disciple of Jesus, here's some of the things he begins to show us is, here's the evidence. Here's what it looks like to be alive in Christ. Verse two, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Let's talk about it so you understand what this means, and then I'll give you some of that evidence. Here's what that means for us when we are alive in Christ. First of all, James is letting us know this really encompasses everything. He's very generic. When troubles of any kind come your way, very broad, very generic. I mean, that's literally everything. So he paints this really broad picture of troubles of any kind, but then he narrows it way down to what our response should be. Did you catch that? Troubles of any kind have joy. Well, what about this trouble? Yep, still joy. Well, what about this issue? Yep, still joy. Well, what about this problem? Yep, still joy. So the, the response is very specific, even though he's encompassing a lot of different problems, difficulties, struggles, issues, and in here uh, we use the word trouble. He also uses the word consider, which means there's options. So when you face a trial, a trouble, a difficulty of any kind, you have to consider how you will respond because there's a lot of ways you could respond. You could consider this trouble an opportunity for frustration. You could consider this trouble and this difficulty, you could consider it an opportunity for sorrow and for weeping. You could consider this trouble, this trial, it could be an opportunity for anger, like watching the Clemson game last night, didn't even finish it. It was an opportunity to go to bed early, is what that was. Same thing if you were a Tennessee fan. See, we're all in the same boat. Anyway, I'll move on quickly. You see what I'm getting at here. There's opportunities. Which one are we going to choose? And he's saying, you're going to have a lot of ways that you could respond. Choose joy. Choose joy. No matter what, choose joy. Now, that sounds easier said than done. How can James challenge us and encourage us to live that way? He gives us the why on the back end of this section. So that it will, look, develop you. 
so that you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Now, let me make sure we're on the same page on that word perfect. That does not mean that you are like sinless perfect and do nothing wrong. Maturity might be a better word there. Like I am maturing, I am growing, I am developing so that I really don't need anything else. Like I'm trusting God with everything. I'm fully dependent on God. So when I face a trial of any kind, I can still choose joy because I know what that difficulty is going to do in my life. I know what that struggle is going to develop in me. It's not just looking at the problem in front of you. It's looking at the picture that comes out of that. You're going to have to do some time hopping with me for a second. You're going to have to think way back. Some of you are going to have no idea what I'm talking about. Most of you are going to remember this. Do you remember the old school days where you would take a picture and like with a thing called film? Do you remember this? <laughs> you would put something in the back of a camera, close it. You would take a picture a bunch of, you, you couldn't do a bunch of them like now. Like you would only have like 20 or something opportunities for pictures. Then you would have to take that camera to like Walmart, CVS, and you would say, please develop this. And they would say, come back in like an hour. Some of you are just like that. You had to wait an hour for pictures? At least. At least, yes. You had to pay more for the hour. Then you would finally get your pictures and they would be in this little envelope and you would put, oh, this was such a great picture. Do you remember what else went in that envelope? It wasn't just the pictures, something else came with it. The negatives, yes. Not if you remember negatives. If not, just Google photography negatives. And you'll be like, a whole new world is gonna open up to you in just a few moments, right? You would have these negatives in there. Now, if you're like me, you never framed the negatives, did you? No, you probably didn't even keep the negatives necessarily, right? The negatives are almost, it feels like worth, like why did they include that? Why is this part of the process? But if you know how photography works, the negatives are what actually creates the beautiful picture that you do frame. The negatives, it's what's used to actually even replicate. I wanna get this picture again. Well, let me have the negatives and then we can make a bigger picture of it. So you take a picture that's in your, your home that you think is your prized picture. This is a beautiful picture of our family. This was one of our greatest vacations. This is one of my greatest moments and memories, and you have it plastered on your wall. It came from a negative. James is helping us understand that negative, that trouble, that trial is not the end picture. It is going to be used to develop something beautiful. And we don't always know what that is. We don't always see that until later, but we can trust that it's gonna happen. Your endurance will grow. And as your endurance is developed, then you will be mature or perfect, complete, fully dependent on God and needing nothing. So what is that evidence? We're talking about being alive in Christ. What does the rest of the world see? I can say I'm a Christian, but what does the world see in me? I'll tell you this. They see that I choose to trust in God and to have joy. That doesn't mean I love every circumstance that I'm in. That doesn't mean I'm happy about all the problems I face. But the world around me and the world around you should see that you choose, choose to trust God and that you choose to have joy. Even in the negative? Most certainly. Because I know there's going to be a beautiful picture that comes from it. I know something great is going to be developed. And it's an opportunity for my faith to grow. And it's an opportunity for God to be glorified. So we choose to trust in him and have joy. Next part, verse five, James says, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, 
For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. Let's talk about this one for a second. Wisdom. Wisdom is helping make the right decisions. It's seen beyond just the choice. Wisdom is seen several choices ahead. We know throughout Scripture that there is godly wisdom and then worldly wisdom. And those are very, very different. That's a whole other sermon and topic, but go through Proverbs if you want to dig into that a little bit more. Godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And so we're told through James, well, if we don't know what to do and if we're not sure which direction to go and we don't know what choice to make, we should ask God to help us in those decisions. We should ask God for wisdom. But then we're given this little side moment, this little teachable lesson about, but time out. If you're going to ask for wisdom, we need to have a little chat. So I picture James pulling up a stool and said, Let's talk about the wisdom when you ask God for it. And he begins to use this different language, and he's not really saying never have doubts and don't have questions. No, like, you should have questions. Ask your questions. You're going to have moments and seasons of doubts. That's okay. That's not what he's getting at. James starts using the word loyalty. Did you catch that? Specifically, divided loyalty. But when you ask, he won't rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, make sure that your faith is in God alone. Don't be a person with divided loyalty. He goes in verse 8. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. So he's like, ask away. Ask your questions. Have your doubts. God's a big boy. He can handle your doubts. But is your loyalty divided? Let me make a distinction between divided loyalty and disloyalty. Disloyalty, there's no loyalty whatsoever. Right? Betrayal would be a word there. There's, there's a, no relationship with God. I'm choosing to walk away from God. I want to have nothing to do with God. That would be disloyalty. James doesn't use that language. He uses divided loyalty, or more like literal, double-minded, which means I am loyal to God and some other things. But no, I love the Lord and some other things. I listen to God and some other people. Do You see divided loyalty? It's not a lack of loyalty. It's just a split loyalty. Becky and I, my wife and I, we've been married 14 years. And in those 14 years, she asked me this question very regularly. I don't know why she still asks me. Probably because there's nobody else in the house to ask, but I'm not very, help. I'm not very helpful in this. She'll, she'll have like an outfit on, getting ready to go to work, and she'll have two different shoes on. <laughs> Guys, you know where this is going. Two totally different shoes on. And she'll step out and she'll say, Brian, which shoe looks best. And I've learned like the first few years, I say they look the same. And I learned real quick, that's the wrong answer. So then I started looking a little bit closer and I will look and I will study both of these shoes and how the colors match and complement and contrast. I think those are the right words. The rest of the outfit. And then I give her my opinion. I think you should go with the shoe on your right foot. She'll look. Yeah, I'm going to go with the left one. And I used to get bothered by this. I used to get frustrated and say, well, then why are you even asking me? Because you literally do the opposite thing every single time. She's like, I don't know. Just, it's, it's nice to hear your opinion, so I do the right thing. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> I wonder how God feels when we go and do what James tells us, when we don't know what to do, when we're trying to figure out what's next, when we're trying to make important decisions in life, and we say, God, I need some wisdom. God, I need some direction. God, tell me what to do. God, what should I do? And then we read his word, and he tells us. And we're like, 
huh, interesting, not what I was thinking you were going to say. I'm going to go the other way, actually. Thank you for your opinion, Lord Jesus, but you don't know what you're talking about on this one. I'm going to do this instead. But thank you so much for your feedback. I'll holler if I have another question. I wonder how that makes him feel when we go to him seeking wisdom and we end up listening to another voice. When we go to him for direction, but we've already made up our own mind. That's the idea behind divided loyalty. May our loyalty not be divided. So what does the rest of the world see when we make decisions and we make a lot of them daily? What does the world see when we make decisions? The world should see, check the heartbeat, that I have faith in God alone, not God and. God alone even comes straight from the text. But when you ask him, be sure your faith is in God alone, not God and somebody else. Is God just one of the many voices that you get feedback from? Is scripture just one of the pieces of your decision-making process? Now, sure, by all means, bring in godly people, get other people. I think God speaks through that, so I'm not, don't take me too extreme on this. But you know these situations. When God's pretty clear in his word on a direction, and we say, mm, I don't really want that to be the answer, so I'm going to find another answer that I like better. And I'll do that this time. But God, stick around because I might need you on another one. Let's not have that kind of loyalty. Not a split-minded loyalty, a double-minded loyalty. May we have a loyalty that is in God alone, not God and. Here's the next part. Verse 12. This is the last section we're going to look at today. Verse 12. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Real quick, just notice we talked about trials and troubles earlier in that first part. When we're to have joy, this is a different part, right? So now we're talking about the temptations and the sins. We can have troubles and difficulties that are not sinful. It's just life, difficulties. Now we're talking about the things that get us in trouble, truly get us into a place of sin. We'll see what happens here. Notice the progression. So God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And remember, when you are being tempted, again, tempted is not the sin, but it's you're tempted to sin. So remember when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation does not come from God. Temptation, we're told, verse 14, comes from our own desires, which, notice this progression, entice us, right? It's always appealing. There's no such thing as a temptation that's not appealing. They're always appealing. You're not tempted to eat more vegetables. You are, well, at least most of us aren't. There might be some weird ones out there. We are enticed, and then they drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Let's make sure we didn't miss it. There's a whole bunch we could jump into here. I don't have time for that today, but we've talked through this progression uh, here before. There's a temptation in front of you, and you have a choice. Am I going to keep going down that road, or am I going to resist? And we're told what happens. When we are tempted, we're tempted by our own desires, those things we want to do, but God says no to. Those things that we want to do, but God says, no, I, I have something better for you. If you're alive in Christ, that's not what your life looks like. But they entice us. They drag us away. It leads to sinful actions, and that sin leads us to death. It's a very obvious pattern, and I'm sure all of us could tell stories on how we've walked that road. But good news is that's not like the end of it. There's a verse 16 through 18 right after this. Verse 16, 
So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't be misled. In other words, there's hope here, but don't be deceived. Like, let's be real about what's happening here. Let me give you the truth, James is telling us. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us or give life to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all of creation, we, you and I, became his prized possession. Let's talk about this one for a minute. So we just talked, we took a break and hit on that progression. Temptation from our desires, what we want to do. It looks really appealing. We can make excuses. We can give rationalizations on why we're okay doing this and no one will ever know and it's not hurting anybody else. God probably doesn't care about this one. It's just a small thing. And that grows into sin. And then sin leads us down the path of death. But then what we read on the other side is, yes, there's that path, that progression. But there's, always a, there's also a path that leads to life. Do you catch all the life and death language in this section? Where sin gives birth to death, but God's true word gives birth to life. When we follow God's direction in our lives, when we listen to his true word and apply it to our life, it leads us down the path of life. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, you know that tension well. Even Paul talks about this. He gives this really confusing section in scripture where I know what I should do, but I don't do that. And I don't do what I really wish I should do. And I just don't know what's going on in my life right now. I mean, he goes through this whole thing. And that's a tension that we as Christians will always experience. Let me speak to that tension. Because I've had conversations across the coffee table many times with a fellow Christian that says, I just don't know why I'm still struggling with this. Like, what's wrong with me? And I'm like, what's wrong with you? Nothing. That's awesome. I'm so glad to hear you're struggling with sin. And that's usually not the, the answer they're expecting. Let me frame it this way for you. Imagine with me that you are a warrior. Whatever warrior picture is in your head right now. I mean, warrior, soldier, brave heart comes to my mind. That's just me, right? Painted face like the warrior cry. Like, I need you to picture yourself as a warrior with fellow warriors around you in the middle of this massive life and death battle. Now, you as a warrior, if you are a dead warrior, are you in the fight? Yes or no? No. As a dead warrior... You are a defeated warrior. As a defeated warrior, you're not fighting anymore. You are out. As a warrior, if you are alive, are you fighting? Yes. Is it painful at times? Yes. Do you sometimes take two steps backwards and then one step forward? Yes. Do you still have the sword in your hand? Are you still advancing? Are you still trying? Are you still sweating? Are you probably bleeding? Yes, because you're in the fight. When we are alive in Christ, oftentimes we have a misconception that means that we hear, I'm alive in Christ, so I will never struggle with sin again. No, that more is matched to the definition of dead. If I don't struggle, that means I'm not alive. But the fact that I am alive in Christ, oh, I struggle and I fight, but now I fight on my terms because I have Jesus. When Jesus said he came to set the captives free, you know what he did? He opened that gate, that jail gate, and as people were walking out, he handed them a sword. He said, now you're free, but you're free to fight in this battle with me. So if you're struggling, fight. That fight between life and death and sin and righteousness, that's a very real battle, and it shows that you're alive. 
but we fight it. We don't just, well, you know, temptation was too strong and we just don't give it. Now, are we perfect? Of course not. Are we going to mess up? Absolutely. Thank God for the grace we read about in Ephesians 2. But what does the world see? If we are alive in Christ, they should see us fighting. The world should see you and I fighting against temptations and desires. We don't just do whatever we want to do. We don't just get rolled over by sin and temptation. We do sometimes, but we always are up on our feet fighting back. And the world notices that. The world sees that we fight against our own desires, the things that we want, the things that we feel like, the things that we fill in the blank. That fight shows that we are still in this fight and shows that we are most certainly still alive. This last part, let me read it again. He chose to give us birth to us, giving us life by his true word. See, when we know his true word, we know what we're fighting against. We're not just battling blindly. The more we know God's word and know his truth, we know where our fight is at. We know the desires of our own heart that we need to fight against. We know the sins that we're tempted by that we must begin to fight against. So God's word, his true word helps us fight. It also reminds us of who we are. That next part, and we out of all creation became his prized possession. There's ownership there. And that might hit you a little funny that, that we are God's possession, but I take such comfort in that, that I'm his. Like, I belong to him. He didn't have to, he didn't have to do that for me. He chose to. He wants me. He wants you. And so we get brought into his family, made alive, and now we are his See, as we go through James, not just this first part of chapter 1, but as we go through the entire study, and you see this throughout Scripture as well, some people view that as, man, there's just a bunch of do's and do nots in here. Like, have joy, don't do this, make sure you don't do that. Like, it just feels like a bunch of do's and don'ts. Man, I would hope that you're not just seeing do this, don't do that. Here's a no, here's a no, here's a no. What James says in the end is, is really his point. We became his. We are not our own. We are his. We are his prized possession. And if we would begin to think of being alive in Christ more about who we are versus what we do, oh, you would see a totally different life in front of you. It's not just what you do. It starts with who you are. Because do you know what comes out of who you are? What you do. Let's get it in the right order. Who we are. We are his. Who are we? We are alive in Christ. And what does that life look like? That's what we just went through. Yes, a life, a, a life alive in Christ, yes, looks like joy, even in difficult times. Yes, it looks like d an undivided loyalty, where I am God alone, not God and. And yes, I fight against my temptations and my desires and the sin that so easily entraps us. We fight against those things, but it's not because I'm supposed to. It's because of who we are. We are his. Now, with that in mind... What did we learn about James at the very beginning? How did he describe himself? I told you we'd come back to it. We're coming back to it. How did he describe himself? You remember? As a slave to who? To God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's fascinating about that statement. James did not always say that. So James, who we're reading from, was the brother of Jesus, that James, like grew up with Jesus. I guess technically be a half-brother of Jesus, but you get it. So he grew up with Jesus, do you know how difficult it would be for your sibling to talk you into the fact that you're the son of God when you grew up with him? Like, do you understand how difficult this would be? 
James comes on the scenes, part of the family, and, and Jesus says, oh, James, brother, nice to meet you. By the way, I'm the Messiah. I will save you from your sins. Uh, no, go clean up and let's go have dinner. I mean, just can you begin to wrap your head around that? James did not believe Jesus was the Son of God. In fact, John chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, let me read this. He actually mocks Jesus. James chapter 7, his brothers, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea where your followers can see all your miracles. They're mocking him. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. Yeah, prove it, Jesus. And this is this last part, verse 5. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. James did not believe in Jesus as the Son of God. But we just read at the beginning of his letter, he didn't even say James the brother of Jesus. He said James the slave of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. What changed? That's a huge change. I believe the change came of a record of an account we get in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's giving the gospel and he writes this. Paul says, I passed on to you what was most important and what has also been passed on to me. Here it is. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He died for our sins, as the scripture said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and by the other 12 disciples. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still living, though some have died. Obviously, the time it was written, verse 7. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. I love that scripture points out that James specifically saw Jesus' resurrection. And James is like, I used to not believe, but now I can't get past it. I used to have divided loyalty, but now I'm a slave of Jesus. I hope that you will be challenged by James's words as we go through this study on, man, my life should look like joy. My life should look like loyalty. My life should look like fighting against sin, desire, and temptation. But most of all, my life is his because of his death and his resurrection. Who are you? James said, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm his. How would you answer that question. Who are you? Before you start worrying about what you do, can you begin to wrestle with who you are? And I pray that you would find yourself being alive in Christ because of his grace. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for who we are because of you. Thank you for who we are in you, that we are alive in Christ, that we are alive in you, not because of our actions, not because of anything that we do or could do. We are alive in you because of what you have done for us. So I pray that's where we begin. Yes, our lives should look different, and yes, we've been given new life, and I pray that we do, that the world would see the evidence of our faith, and they would see the joy, and they would see our loyalty, and that we would see our, our fight against sin and temptation. But all that is founded in our heart for who we are, and ultimately, we are yours. So thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for saving us, and help us to have that living proof for people to see who we are, not just what we do. In Jesus' name.